podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, this week uh, it's a special episode looking back at the last year. Uh, when this goes out, the Gibraltar Open will be in full swing. That was the first event where uh, we were starting to play behind closed doors. In fact, I was told recently the last day was very nearly cancelled. Uh, they managed to get through it. Of course, in Gibraltar, the regulations changed on the last day. They got the tournament played. I'm here with uh, Neil Folds, Alamut Manus affiliates. We were all in Clan Didno. That was the next event, the Tour Championship, uh, the night before. And I think Boris Johnson made an announcement uh, that suggested that the tournament may not be able to happen. It didn't happen. And, of course, we all went home. Uh, with great uncertainty about what was going to happen, not only in the snooker world, but in the, in the world in general. But as we know, snooker got its act together very quickly when sport was allowed back. We came back. There's been a lot of events, mainly staged at Milton Keynes, where we are recording this. And hopefully it's provided a lot of entertainment for snooker fans and certainly it's given uh, the players a chance to play. Phil, we came back from Clandidno, as I say. Uh, it's a beautiful March day, wasn't it? And no one knew what was going to happen. It was actually like being in a, in a movie. Um, I've never felt a greater degree of uncertainty in my whole life. It wasn't just professional uncertainty about snooker, it was just uncertainty in general. I was really worried about a, a whole range of things. My mum's in her 80s, you know, I'm 58. I was worried about health. I was worried about financial concerns. It was just a horrible day. And the worst thing was just not knowing. Uh, but as you say, a little over two months later, we were back in the saddle. I think it sort of hit home, Neil, when the World Championship... I think we expected it to be called off in that slot in April. Um, but it was, and everyone did their best with all the nostalgia. But you kind of... You set your... You know, there are certain rhythms to a year. It's like the seasons. And for snooker people, that's always been about the crucible. And then it didn't happen. Yeah, and I remember when we were got to London. No, actually, the night before we were just doing, we were just convening, just all, all getting ready for the snooker, and they were cancelling things all over the place that night. The Grand National went, I think Wimbledon went. So yeah, the, the World Championships was never likely to take place in its normal slot, and I, there was a lot of people thought it wouldn't happen at all, which would have been strange. It would have meant that Judd Trump was world champion for two years. A lot of people wanted it cancelled. I mean, I had quite angry messages from a couple of people who are snooker fans said it shouldn't be on what if you know a referee got ill or something happened all these different scenarios but we got through it didn't we and um, it was a unique and a great world championship when it took place no getting away from it of course there'd been tournaments before that as we know and we started on 1st of June didn't we to get things going but it was great to get the world championships on and it's you know one of the very few events that's not taken place at this place we're sitting now in Norton Keynes be good to get a player's perspective Alan obviously you know you're very much on the tour um and again, in those early days, as players, you didn't know what was going to happen. When were you going to play next? Could you practice? What you know, what the tour was going to look like? Yeah, I remember the, the day that we set home from Lundudno. And uh, John Higgins was there, Mark Allen was there already. They dropped up ready to play as, as we all were working and stuff. And I remember driving back home up the motorway and I phoned John. And it was like, you know, oh, this is not so good, isn't it? You know, he's driving home. He was actually driving Mark Allen over, I think it was John Lennon Airport in Liverpool. Uh, so he was shipping back across to Ireland and we were like, you know, what is going on? You know, hopefully in a couple of weeks we'll get back to... It was the unknown, that, as Phil said. That was the, the, the real sort of uncertainty of it. And, and as a player, you thought, well... Maybe the tournaments are not going to get anything. You're worried about the World Championship. I think China by that time obviously had been 
putting the back burner, we weren't going to be travelling anywhere. Just an uncertain time for everyone, especially, you know, and players, yes, but you guys as well, all the production, all that goes with that. It's a big old operation and it was a tough time. And d- did you just carry on practising? Could you practise? I mean, because d- you, you, obviously you didn't know, maybe the World Championship suddenly would be announced. No, well, when I got home from Lindudno, um, pretty soon after that, the clubs were closed. And I, I don't have a table at home or, or I don't have a facility to practice. So for me, it was pretty difficult and, and it still is. The club's still closed. It was open. I think from memory, it opened mid-July. Was that two weeks before the Crucible? Mm. Um, so I was able to get in, or maybe it was pre-qualifying. I can't quite remember. So I got a couple of weeks in there. Um, I've got a friend that I was able to go to his club and play a little. Um, there was no one in it. He, he would, you know, he let me in. I went in, one set of balls and stuff, and played away. But it was really difficult times. And then, you, once it sort of hit home, and, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, go, going to the tournaments and players getting the practice time and all that goes with that, really different and 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 quite annoying. But small price, I guess. But it, it, you know, all of a sudden, going into practice rooms um, since then. You get a slot. The other guys who are on the practice tables get shipped out. They get ushered out. Sets of balls cleaned, all that sort of stuff. And then you get your slot. And you're you're not chucked out. You you basically you have to go out. So that massive changes from a player's standpoint. Those early days, the days were long, weren't they? It was like sort of two and a half months until the first event came back. I remember watching, I think this was a low point for me. I remember watching someone on YouTube uploaded um, this video of all the... Um, Introductions to snooker programs over the years, the different theme tunes, you know, the graphics and so on, how they evolved. Forty minutes this was, by the way, and I thought I'll just watch it for the start of it. I was like hooked by it. It was the most excitement I'd had for like weeks. Um, but it was interesting. Barry Hearn, World Snooker Chairman, he emailed all the staff um, when the lockdown was announced, and he said, "None of you are going to lose your job, and we will find a way of getting through this." And what that did was it gave the staff uh, job security, and it allowed them time to to use that horrible phrase, think outside the box. We, Phil, came to the first event. Elite Sport was allowed back on June the 1st. On June the 1st, the Championship League began here in Milton Keynes. We were here, didn't know what to expect, I think it's fair to say. Um, I was amazed, actually, at the amount of thought that had gone into it, you know, because they'd never had to deal with this before. And they did, you know, they were, they were entitled to make a lot of mistakes in that first event, but actually, they did a superb job, Matchroom and Will Snooker Tour. I can't speak highly enough of them. Obviously, Donna Beresford at World Snooker, she's done a wonderful job. Emily Fraser, Nick Thiel, all the people at Matchroom as well. The thought that's gone into it, that first event, the Championship League, we were here for a considerable amount of time and I wasn't sure how the bubble would work. It was watertight, wasn't it? You felt suddenly as though you could actually talk to people, converse with people again. You could, you were in, the word says it all, you're in your own bubble. And I felt completely safe. And when we started off, I remember I actually commentated on the very first match. And as I was doing my intro into the first frame, I got really emotional because at one point in April and May, you're thinking, will I ever commentate again? Will I ever see snooker again? I'm not being dramatic. That thought went through my mind. Yeah, I mean, I think we just explained to people what when we talk about the bubble. So, I mean, we're talking about the very start of it. We got here... I think we got here two days before it started. You, we had the test. We hadn't had the test before. Didn't know what to expect with that. I, I think it went slightly better for me than you. You had a, a, a guy who became known for being quite sort of um, 
well, overzealous maybe the way the way he tested people. Um, you know, you get the swab down your throat, up your up your nostril. It takes twenty seconds, but you know, it's not. You wouldn't necessarily look forward to it, I suppose. Um, you go to your room. I think because we got tested quite early in the morning, we got our results in the evening. Back then, it doesn't happen now actually, but back then you were allowed to go to a little terrace area. You could sit outside. The weather was nice because it was kind of early early summer, I guess. Um, and you get a wristband given to you, which you have to wear at all times. That allows you backstage. There were kind of one-way systems to follow. The sort of things that, if there wasn't a pandemic, you'd be really annoyed by. And let's be honest, quite a few people did get annoyed by them in the end. But actually, at that time, they're just trying to keep us safe. Hand sanitizers, everything. We were in an area where we were commentating in our own room. We had a screen between us. So it was all, you know, it, not only were the sort of regulations very strict, but you were made to feel safe. You know, you were kept away from people. It was, and everyone was in their own little area. The players had their own sort of bubble. The officials, you know, a lot of thought had gone into it, as I say. Yeah, and the commentary area where we were, because they wanted to keep people apart, was a really expansive room with a, a dividing uh, partition between us. We had our own microphones. We had uh, sanitizers, which we still have for all of the areas around. So yeah, you could have felt more safe. You're right, though. That first test, wow, the guy. He was christened Phil the Destroyer, and he destroyed this Phil, I can tell you. He, he went so far up my nose, I thought he touched my brain at one point. It was just horrible. <laughs> I've never been in prison. Now, people will say, will say there's still time, I know, but, um, but we, you would get a knock on the door, uh, sort of half eight in the morning, your breakfast is outside. It sounds like a sort of prison experience. Whether you wanted it or not, they would knock your door, you're up, here's your breakfast sort of thing. But again, it's to stop people congregating, I guess, and getting together. Remember, at that time, it was still early in the pandemic. People were still learning. I mean, at that time, people weren't really wearing masks as such. It was, it was still sort of quite early on. Now, of course, Neil and Alan, you yeah. worked on that, but you worked at it from home. So you, you I mean, we, we come to these events, we're looked after royally by the people that do the real work on the production teams, as, as we know. But you had to essentially construct a home studio. What was that like? Well, I mean, I, fine. I mean, I was down the south coast. I think you were up at, at Glasgow. Were you not, Alan? And uh, mm, Jill yeah. was um, Jill was in Cheltenham, and Stephen was down in Berkshire. So it was, it was very odd. Um, we got sent all the stuff, um, which I mean, it cost a lot of money. We won't go into the figures, but I think a lot of money was spent on getting it all um, usable. And then they said, "Well, here it all is." So, well, who's going to be the guy to? Uh, <laughs> Well, the person to come and assemble it, and I realised, remembered that of course no one's allowed in anyone's houses, so it was me. So it was done through, um, and Alan would, Alan's probably better at all this anyway because he seemed to have it all mastered. No, but, I'm not. <laughs> well, we, we got there and we got all the equipment sorted out, and we thought, well, this surely none of this can possibly work. And we had a backdrop, and um, you know, ITV did a great job on that. You know, they really did to make it. Uh, I mean, I didn't think that they were going to show 11 days of the Championship League, it wasn't ranking, was it? Not there, no. No, that wasn't a ranking. I just didn't think it was going to be on. But I suppose what they did have was a position that, that there wasn't really any sport on at all. There was a, I think horse racing started that same day, but there was nothing else going on, no football or anything. Everything. I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that everything came to a, a standstill, all sport, everything during that period. So it, it was great. I mean, it, we got it all working anyway, and I don't think there were too many. I think maybe somebody's internet went down once during the whole 11 it might have been yours actually Alan funny enough uh, yeah I think mine did I had some problems with the connection but here's a, here's a good one I can't remember if it was the first tournament or the tour championship might have been but I think myself and Stephen were in with Jill so the remote broadcast and we went to an ad break and uh, Jill Jill's internet went down and we, I think we were about maybe two and a half minutes to air <laughs> they, 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 they call it isn't it so 
and all of a sudden I can hear in my earpiece, I can hear Jill saying my things with me. And we're coming back from that break and I'm thinking, one of us is going to yeah. maybe have to represent the, after the ad break the shoot and I'm like oh no and I know Stephen's not going to put his hand up and do it so I think I'm going to maybe get roped into yeah. this and I, I really don't want to do it I couldn't have, probably wouldn't have been capable of doing it anyway so I could hear the a bit of kerfuffle you know with Jill's it was an internet issue she actually was brilliant because she done the old trick she switched it off and on and it started working again yeah, you say, and yeah. I was like oh thanks very much you know because I was I hit panic button a little you know I thought coming back from an ad break I wouldn't have fancied that and vision as well you know the worst thing that happened to me was one day at the end of each match we were asked to do a, a relatively quick out and then Jill and you guys would pick up with the analysis of the match afterwards and that's fine all of a sudden, the local director here at Milton Keynes was saying to me in my cans, keep talking, keep talking. So I kept talking just to follow his direction, <laughs> think there had been something gone wrong. And of course there hadn't been. That was for his purposes. And it meant that there was all kinds of problems <laughs> with Jill. And I heard Jill in my can say, why does he carry on talking? Shut up, shut up. <laughs> but I swear, I wasn't, you know, I was only taking direction, but obviously for the wrong person. A cruel yeah. person would say that they say that about you anyway, but obviously <laughs> yeah. there's no cruel people here, so yeah. they, they I won't think, say I think that, that whole event, that, that 11 days thinking back on it, it was a great event. I, I think we're all under a little bit of pressure. I remember it was very hard on a couple of players during one very slow day of it, and I, sort of, I kind of regret it now. It was Martin O'Donnell and Nigel Bond, and I think Martin is the nicest guy. It was a horribly long match. I mean, I, but I think I just sort of launched into a thing about how it was the worst match I've ever seen and all that. And it did, it, the group was, it, look, without going into it again, it, it held the day up quite dramatically. But I think I was a little bit too strong on that. But sometimes I think we're all under a bit of, well, at the time we were under a little bit of pressure of our own, you know, thinking about what's going to happen to the world. And uh, I've spoken to uh, Martin O'Donnell a few times and uh, we're good now, it's all sorted out. But uh, And he's playing a bit quicker as well, so I think everyone has gained. But, you know, sometimes you can... The little things at the time can be, uh, when, when you're under those sort of different pressures that the whole world was under, the little things seem big things, don't they? It, it was funny setting up the, the home studio thing to touch on that. We, we got basically maybe two or three big black suitcases, didn't we, full of all the, you know, with the padding in it for all the, there was two or three different iPads, one with a camera, one with a the sound thing and all the so we had to set all that up and, and that wasn't easy and then the screen it was like the projector screen you pull up mm. and there was a little clip on the top of it that if it like snapped it would it would yeah, come down come so down, yeah. and Jill had one or two issues with that but um, yeah very strange and it, it, it probably took me about a day to set up the studio because I'm not very gifted when it comes to all that tech well stuff. there's no reason why anyone, anyone should be but we, we nearly had a first fill because we were also doing table two um, and but table one was prioritised because it was ITV. It was very nearly a one four seven with with two different commentary teams on it. Because I think did you start it? I think, and then you had to come and do table one. So I rushed in. I think Robert Milkins was on like fifty six or something. Fifty six. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. That could have been a first. <laughs> the one with Neil and the rants about Martin O'Donnell. It was really funny. I was sitting here listening to shortly going, I was just, I was just wished that someone had brought me back in. I said, yeah, that match was terrible. It reminded me of Neil Folds against yeah. Robbie Falvari well, at the British Open. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was involved in a couple of those games. <laughs> well, I, think, I think what I said was that, um, that the, the, the frame that concluded the match, I think I said um, that, that was the, the worst frame of snooker I've ever seen. Some of the others 
the, the worst I've seen were also in that match. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, as I say, it's all forgotten now. But uh, you've, you've got to say what you think at the time, but I'd probably strong it, you know. Well, we came back for the Tour Championship, um, which was, again, sort of in the height of summer, really. And by that point, there were kind of suggestions that we were maybe starting to move through through this, this terrible thing. The World Championship uh, was slated to take place in the slot the Olympics would have been on. The Olympics were cancelled. The BBC had cleared the schedules for those. And so the World Championship slotted in, which was quite fortuitous. Um, the cruise board were very keen to have us. And at that point, it looked like crowds would go along in a reduced capacity. Day one, turn up at the cruise board. OK, it wasn't full, but there were people there. There was some sort of atmosphere. During the first morning, it was announced again by the government because of the scientific data, we're going to have to stop crowds. So the next day, there were none. And eventually, they came back for the last day. It was weird. I mean, you played there, Alan. I think, you, did you play on the first day and the second day? So you experienced both sides. I did, yeah. Day one, I played Mark Williams. Day one, we had the um, reduced crowd. And it was, it was actually, it was all right. Decent little atmosphere. Um, similar numbers-wise to, what, the final um, in the end. But then the second day, yeah, I played Mark. And uh, I didn't win a frame, so maybe it was good that there weren't <laughs> anyone there to, to sort of witness it because I was rubbish. But it was, um, yeah, and I, and I spent the whole time, obviously, end up working there after losing. And uh, it, it was it was good from a working standpoint, but completely different. Obviously, with no crowd, and backstage was very strange. There was reduced um, numbers in the press room. Normally, that's a hive of activity, as you guys obviously know. There's, there's a ballpark 25, maybe 30 journals in there doing their thing. There was, I think, eight, something like that. There was tables separated and... The, the numbers were pretty were stringent on who they were letting in there. It was a um, very strange championship. Yeah. I mean, I think we all, we all wanted it at the Crucible, but it's the one venue, unlike Milton Keynes or, or Celtic Manor, for example, where you have the empty seats because it's a theatre. They can't take the seats out. So you're reminded. You, it's still the Crucible, but you're reminded there's no one there. It was weird, wasn't it? It was weird. And the first day was I had a couple of setbacks, didn't we, when you think about it? Because there was the announcement about crowds. And I remember you and Dominic came back from your first session, I don't think you were aware that, that that was it, you know, and we told you what, what had been announced, and also um, I think it was that morning, Anthony Hammond had pulled out in the, either on the morning or the night before, I don't know the day before, yeah, yeah, day before, but it became known, I think, on the on the first morning and then Barry wasn't very pleased, obviously he had his reason, but we, I think we'd had a drink with Anthony anyway, a couple of nights before yeah, in at, the, the qualifiers, yeah. at the qualifiers, and uh, he didn't give us any indication he was about to pull out and that was a decision he made, it didn't put the dampers on things, because no one's ever had a walkover match at the Crucible before um, hopefully it'll never, it'll never happen again but uh, but I think as the tournament got, we got on with it we got used to nobody being there it, things did improve or we certainly tolerated the situation better as the two and a half weeks went on didn't we? Definitely and, and what we saw and, and this kind of reached a zenith fill on the, on the last day of the semi-finals is it's still the World Championship it still matters to the players it's still big money the pressure still comes on The semi-final third day i.e. the the conclusion of the semi-finals was, in my opinion, the best day, not just in the World Championship history, but in snooker history. When you can have a match between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Selby that goes the distance, that's got all the ingredients of a classic, overshadowed <laughs> by Karen Wilson and Anthony McGill, that says a lot. I was absolutely enraptured by the whole day. It was, for me, as I said before, the greatest day in snooker history. And... I suppose after that, really, whatever happened in the final, it was going to be a little bit of an anticlimax. Uh, Ronnie winning his sixth title, obviously, was fantastic. The 
the low point of the championship for me was that first night because a lot of people who got tickets for that final session when they realised they weren't going to be there on Sunday or Monday or whatever basically just went home so even though maybe 250 people were allowed in or whatever it's probably 100 people in there for that last session on the Saturday yeah. night the first day and it was so depressing it was terrible uh, you know hopes had been raised and then dashed but of course having the, the arena completely empty for the vast majority of the championship actually led to certain things occurring that wouldn't have occurred if the crowd had been in and a, a, a classic point was Jamie Clark and Anthony McGill having that skirmish now I was commentating on the other table Ronnie O'Sullivan against Ding Wei, and you can hear this noise going on in the background you wouldn't have heard that if there had been a crowd in there uh, I just didn't know what was going on obviously I'm concentrating on O'Sullivan and, and, and Ding so those kind of those kind of things were occurring which you'd never seen before but I think considering the crowd weren't in, I think the championship was a, an unqualified success. The standard was great. The stories produced were great. And towards the end of it, towards the seven, end of the 17 days, Dave, I don't know whether you agree with me, I didn't really notice the fact that the crowd wasn't there. Well, I think that's it. I think snooker, just the nature of... It's one of the few sports where the whole playing area, you can just get into one frame and you end up just concentrating on, on the 12 by 6, I think. But here's a question. So we're, we're here at the, uh, the Players' Championship. Ronnie O'Sullivan... He's into the final as we record this. And he said after he got to the final, he was sort of asked about the crowds, do you miss them? And he gave, I thought, a very honest answer. He could have given the sort of politically correct sort of PR answer. Oh, of course I miss them. He actually said kind of, well, not really. And I don't think it's in the arena. I think it's all the kind of fuss around the venue. There's no one here for autographs and selfies and getting a piece of him. So I guess the question is, and it's impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Would he actually have won the World Championship had there been a crowd? Because... He hadn't been to the final for, what, six years there? Um, he'd lost to James Cahill the first round before. Was it a help to him that there were no crowds? Well, I'm going to say no, because uh, if, if it would have been a first-time winner, I'd have said, well, we don't, we'll never know it's possible. The fact that he's won it five times before, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't have won it. I, I can't see that. And there was people in there for the final, not that many. So I know other people might disagree. And Ronnie is, you know, he's, as he said, he's made it clear he's not... He's happier when there isn't, there aren't crowds. But he's won. I'm glad that it wasn't a first-time winner, so there was no such problem. And I think that it had Selby won it, Higgins won it, uh, Mark Williams, all these guys that have won it before more than once. Uh, I, I think it's proved that it was an ordinary, a normal championship, or as normal as it could be. And I, I would say, yeah, of course he could have won it with crowds. He could do anything, that fella. <laughs> There's no doubt I, in my mind he, he, he could have won it regardless of crowds or not. The, the one thing I wonder, when, it, when he was 16-14 behind to Mark in the semi-final, if there's a crowd, would he have thrown his arm at those shots and played that magic snooker for the... I know he's done it in the past a hundred times, I understand that, but would he have, with a crowd, thought, right, OK, because in the crucibles with the crowd, sometimes the atmosphere determines the way you think. But I think because there was no crowd, he was able to get, right, OK, there's no one what yet. Let's just go, have a go here. We're, we're playing in a quiet environment. It doesn't feel like it would normally. So maybe that helped him in that instance. But I, I guess we'll never know. I think it's kind of a, a tribute to him in a way, though, that someone who has thrived on a crowd won the championship without one. You know, mm. he's always been like the sort of the 12th man almost for him, having the crowd on your side. The fact that it was a kind of soulless environment, you might say actually would be a detriment to it. So that's the other side. I'm just going on what he said. He actually said, it's not so much the crowd in the arena, it's arriving at a venue and not being assailed by 
50 people weren't a selfie. And a lot of people say, boo-hoo, you're a millionaire, but they don't have to put up with this every day, you know? They haven't experienced it. Um, what do you think, Phil? I'm not sure. I really am not sure. One thing I will say, you mentioned James Cahill. I think one of the reasons Cahill beat O'Sullivan in that match was because it was a really alien environment for Ronnie because a large proportion of the crowd wanted Cahill to win. Now, normally when Ronnie plays, even if he plays in China against Ding, the vast majority of the people want to see Ronnie win because they want to see Ronnie. So that was a strange situation for him. Definitely I agree with Neil. He could have won it without a crowd. He could have won it with a crowd. But crowds do influence certain players. Down at the Masters, for instance, two players were greatly influenced by the crowd, in my opinion, over the years. Detrimentally for Jimmy White, because he had this expectation of trying to play well for, for his crowd. And I think that put him under too much pressure, and that's why he only won the Masters on one occasion. And conversely, Stephen Hendry's got this within him, this curmudgeonly stubborn thing, I'll show them. And the crowds were disgraceful to, to Hendry over the years down at the Masters. But he fed off that and used it as a motivational tool to win. Now, that's just two instances. With O'Sullivan, as I said, I think I'm with Neil. I've got no real idea what could have happened. He could have won it with a crowd. Most certainly, he won it without one. Maybe it was a help. I'll never know. Well, we won't know. That's the point. Um, but I want to move on to the new season. So then we it started quite soon after the Crucible. And, of course... European Masters English Open these sort of tournaments Alan 1-8 to eight at the venue so suddenly there's a lot of people here at Milton Keynes you touched on it earlier about sort of practice and so on what were the sort of noticeable changes compared to you know even a year before where you're just turning up and you know the great freedom really to do what you want yeah again on the practice schedule you had you basically booked your slots and here's one example it was here in Milton Keynes I came in I can't remember which tournament it was I came in hoping to get a practice and uh, I think the practice sheets were full and I asked at the desk downstairs I said are there any slots right and there's no one on it there was five practice tables and I asked for a slot and they said um, well you can go on now and I, th I think there was 20 minutes of the slot that in that moment in time was left there was no one on the table they said you can go up and take the table that's free but you'll lose the one that you booked later on which was at half past nine at night or something and also if you go up and take the slot now the guy who might come in late for the slot now you'll get chucked off and you'll lose your one later on so you're like mm. it was it was just a whole upheaval for every player as far as practicing um, difficult to sort of get your head round and players coming to a tournament like one of the most important things is a player's slots I mean that personally you get it's now all online and stuff but I actually I'm a bit I'm a bit uh, sort of uh, old school. Old school, exactly. The way I do it, I've got my wallet. I, every time I get a piece of paper and I write down my times, Tuesday half ten, Tuesday five o'clock, so that I can. I don't need to worry. I look my what I've got them. So, um, although I, I didn't used to do that, but I've been doing it now. You know, because it's like golden. You, you need your practice time, and, and if you miss it, you you've had your chips. You know. I think Milton Keynes obviously and it's done a great job and, and uh, of just providing a place to play but I heard it, I've heard it said several times oh it's good because it's central it's not really central if you live in Glasgow is it it's a, it's a long drive down it's a long drive back yeah it's very um, very long drive it's about a six and a half hour drive for me um, to get down and up I came the first probably 
three, four, maybe five visits to, to Milton Keynes I, I drove. And then laterally, the last two or three months, I've gotten the train down and back home uh, either three or four times. The trains have been brilliant for us because there's no one on them. I yeah. mean, you cannot believe uh, that how empty the trains are. Like, if I've been on eight trains all in, going up and down, there's no one in any carriage. It's brilliant. I actually came down to one of them with Fraser Patrick. It was that Pro Series event. Um, we and I, I didn't know he was going to be in the same train. I bumped into him at Glasgow Central just a few weeks ago, and we came down, and it's brilliant. You got. The, you know the whole carriage to yourself, so it's been good from that. But but it is a long it's a long journey. Mm. But <laughs> look, it's it's worse for the guys in Ireland, and I'm sure you know the Belgians and young Brian Ochoiski, boys like that, mm. having to go back home. That's tough. Mm. I think for me, when the new season started, the thing that I noticed straight away was that players were starting to get tested and tested were tested positive, and that's what shocked yeah. me. Yeah. That was what really did change things for me. And thinking, well, up now we hadn't really seen anything, had we? we? I didn't. We didn't know anybody, or most of us didn't know anybody that tested positive. Some might have done, and obviously some people had terrible stories. I'm without going into all that, but I think the very first event, I think if I'm not mistaken, Gary Wilson and Daniel Wells might have tested positive. I thought, okay, now this really is impacting on the players, and of course. You thought, goodness, hope those boys are going to be fine. That's more than anything. And it turns out the the, the people on the tour, mercifully, they haven't been badly affected. But there must be, oh, I think I mean, I, I, over 20 players of the, on the tour have since tested positive, and thankfully they're all fine. Um, I could I could probably we could without going into names. It must be you're talking maybe a fifth of the tour have, have come down with it, haven't they? So that's what really shocked me. And uh, events for the next three or four months players did test positive on a regular basis I know it happened to you Dave you know mm. as a commentator and one or two others on the other side of uh, uh, out, not non-players and all that but um, that's when you realise wow this is a serious business now you know yeah it's not nice either because and it's no one's fault this they're doing the right thing obviously they need to get you off, out off the premises um, because you can't be here they sort of fumigate your room or whatever and so you're literally just marched off off, off, the, off, the, off the premises for the players, you know, they've got rankings, they've got prize money, things to think about. And also, I think early on when people were testing positive, you think if, if there's sort of three on the first day, maybe there'll be a few more on the second day. And eventually you're thinking this tournament maybe is going to collapse because people are pulling out and even people... I mean, Oliver Lyons, I think, was very unlucky. He, he, he won a match in one of the tournaments having tested negative. His dad, Peter, tested positive. Ollie had seen him only briefly, as it turned out, but he'd spent time with him. So he... I think he, I can't remember who he beat now. He beat someone, someone good. I think was playing well. Had to go home. Not playing same camp. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so very difficult. And again, you know, it's it's no one's fault. They've all been careful. I mean, Anthony Hamilton. There's no one more careful than him. Um, he was literally going from the club to his home. He would take his clothes off, wash them when he got home. Couldn't have been more careful. He tested positive. Actually, Peter Lyons told me he was quite. He himself was quite quite ill with it. He, he lost sort of his breath and and you know was very close to going to the hospital. Um, very difficult, but I think in terms of the actual snooker fill on the table, what we saw until Jordan Brown recently, all the people who won the tournaments were the same people who'd, who'd been winning them the last few years. That's right. Well, the great concern for the champion of champions in November for a lot of this season is that it was just repeat winners. You know, we've got a 16-man field there, and at one point it was looking as though he'd probably have half of them off the rankings uh, because... It was just the same old guys winning tournament after tournament after tournament. I think this season has been remarkable for three reasons. One, the standard has been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, if you think about it, post-pandemic, the Tour Championship, for instance, we had 
two best of 17s where one player had six centuries. So Maguire set the record, six centuries in the best of 17. And a couple of days later, Murphy did the same and lost the match. And I think that set the pattern. The standard's been phenomenal. Secondly, shocks pre-Jordan Brown have been thin on the ground. I think thirdly, that I always think about it, is that the people I feel most sorry for this season have been the rookies because someone like young Jamie Wilson or Aaron Hill, you know, their first season on tour is this, you know, and it's not like this normally, is it? It's not like this is a very strange situation. They must be dying to play in front of crowds, and let's hope they get the opportunity. Well, sorry, I wanted to touch back on the Crucible thing and, and pay tribute to the... Just before you carry on, yeah. I'm just supposed to explain. For some reason, they turned up the music, <laughs> obviously to entertain the crowds that are not here. But anyway, let's <laughs> continue. Uh, yeah, on the Crucible thing, pay tribute to the, the people who go year on year, and hopefully we'll all be back soon, obviously. Yeah. Um, the, the whole dynamic of the Crucible is is almost based around the crowd as we know, you know, Crucible Square, in the venue, atmosphere, all that sort of stuff. Even the final weekend, I think it is, the tickets go on sale for next year. There's a queue a couple of hundred yards long for the tickets for next year. There was none of that. So I was walking in every morning. I was lucky to be there uh, in both capacities, playing and, and doing um, the TV stuff. And uh, that that's the thing that we really missed at the Crucible. I know you guys weren't able to come up there. And and the, the, the thing about the people who go, and it's year on year, you go back to the hotel, you go in at night, you probably go to the bar, you maybe have a pint or something, and you see the same faces. And it's brilliant to see them all there. And thanks for coming year on year and come back next year and we'll be there, you know, hopefully. Definitely, because a lot of those guys, it's like a sort of, it's like a festival, isn't it? It's an annual, it's the only time maybe they'll see each other that That's every, every year. Missed, it? Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. And, and yeah, I mean... I know they're talking about possibly making this year's a, a test event, but that's kind of out of Barry's hands. That's down to the to the government. I just want to touch on. I mean, some players have, have sort of dealt with it better than others, and I think players have spoken quite openly about how they've struggled. Not everyone likes spending a lot of time on their own. Steve Maguire came down here, didn't he, and, and sort of smashed the pack, couldn't wait to get home. Everyone's different, aren't they? Um, as, as a player, Alan, how, how have you sort of found having to sort of isolate as such and be in your room and not? mix as much as maybe you would normally? Pretty difficult, yeah, must admit. Um, I wouldn't say I've been depressed about it, but I've been seriously cheesed off from time to time, as, as probably every player has been. You're not able... You know, listen, players down the years have had some criticism from certain quarters, even some journalists within Snooker or, or whoever writes about it. None of you guys, but there's been a couple of people who have criticised players. I'll get, Here's an example of why I respect pretty much all the players on the tour talking about coming down from Scotland for tournaments I can guarantee that none of us have shared a card down here you know you've, you've got to do what you've got to do come down on your own whether it's train or your own car I mentioned Fraser Patrick earlier I would nothing more I would love to because I, I played in the same group in the Pro Series I'd text Fraser say listen I'm going down on Thursday do you want a lift or vice versa you can't do that and we're not doing that in the play you know, certainly the ones I know, the guys from Scotland. So credit to the the, the players for that kind of thing, because um, I don't like to see them get criticised unduly. Um, certainly the ones I know. Yeah, I know one thing. Um, snooker. I mean, it might have had it hard, but I was looking at um, there's a jockey called Tom Marquand, who's a, a British jockey who's just gone to Australia to to ride there, and he had to spend two weeks completely in isolation in, the, in a hotel room without coming out once. Uh, he's, they've got an exercise bike in there which he's obviously keeping fit on 
but he hasn't been able to do anything else but that. And that, that, that is really tough, isn't it? And don't get me wrong, these guys are earning good money when they come out, but two weeks where you can't leave a room once, that is, and a lot of the cricketers are doing it, a lot of the overseas stuff is like that, and that's going to maybe impact on the snooker tour when we can finally travel. So there's a lot of people having it difficult as well. Of course, there? Declan Lavery, he, he had that, didn't yeah. he? Because he came over for, well, his home event, although it was played here in Milton Keynes, the Northern Ireland Open, tested positive, couldn't be put on a plane because he's got the virus. He has to isolate for 10 days, just spent 10 days in his hotel room. I mean, that's just no, no fun at all, is it? Yeah, and, and I've taken a risk a couple of times, but it's on my own on my own head, be it. I've, I've come down, whether it's playing or in a working capacity, as I said, I got the train. And when you get the train down here, if you test positive, you know you're going to have to suffer what Declan did, mm. but that, that's you live with the sword, you die with the sword, that's my own decision. But it's just the fact that I can't face a six and a half hour drive yeah. again because it really gets to you. Um, I know people are, there's a lot worse things people have got to put up with, yes, um, but that's tough, and so you've just got to make a call on certain things. But um, and no one would like to have to spend that amount of time, obviously, in a hotel room. But that's that would be the case if if he tested positive. Yeah, and I think it's obviously important to say a lot of people, I'm sure, listening to this will have you know they're not working at all, and some will have lost jobs, businesses. We know it's been very difficult in the economy. Just as we start to wrap up, Phil. Have we learned anything from all this, or, or or when it hopefully comes back to normal, do we just go back to normal, or do we think we maybe I don't know, do we appreciate snooker more? Maybe maybe appreciate the tour more? It's changed me. I can tell you something, and this is the truth. I've enjoyed snooker tournaments more this season than at any other time in my career, because for me, work and pleasure have actually switched over. Work is now my pleasure, because when you're not at work. There's literally nothing to do. So being at tournaments is the best time of my life for the last year because other than that, you get depressed, you're seeing the news all the time, you've got nothing to do, you can't go anywhere. I love to travel. I go to America twice a year on vacation. That's all gone. So being at work fills my mind, fills my hours, and it's the best part of my, my year. So I'll never, ever forget this year for that reason. And also, I think... I've become more appreciative, not just of snooker when we go back to normal, but I think of just the normal things you do in life, going around a golf or going on holiday, that'll seem like phenomenal in the years to come. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think I think that's that's all that's all true, and uh, you know it, it has changed. I think a lot of our perspective of, of everything really. There's no question about it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking the tour will come back it, you know, with overseas events at some point. I'm not sure that's going to happen yet, is it? I don't know what this year has in store for us all, really. Um, hopefully, we will get back to China and other parts of the world, but that's not going to happen. Just one other thing. I mean, I, we mentioned all the players that is affected. A lot of the overseas players, I don't know how they've ever got over here, you know, like, like Luca Bussell, like Ulian Boyko. It was his first year as a professional as well. Age 15, he, he must think, what on earth is this snooker tour all about? You know, he's not won many matches. He's been spending it all in Milton Keynes. So it's tough, you know, for a youngster like that too, isn't it? So, yeah, it's uh, sobering. Yeah, t- talking of tough, I mean, I, this is not a complaint. It's just an observation. I... Pre-Christmas, I went home on the 21st of December, I think it was, and I came down here on the 31st of October, so I was, I was here for 49 out of 52 days, that's quite, <laughs> that's, that's quite a lot, I got home for three days prior to the Grand Prix, I think it was, and it, I'm not complaining, I'm just, I'm just telling people that's what, you know, that's what, um, but very fortunate being able to play and do some work at the tournaments, which I love doing. 
Um, but that was uh, that was quite a long stint, you know, 50 days ballpark. Yeah. Well, I'm really shallow. I just want to get back to the pub, um, <laughs> and uh, hopefully that day will come as well, and we'll uh, we'll be able to maybe relax a bit more at tournaments and, and mix a bit more at tournaments because it is uh, obviously, as we know, a nice community at uh, the snooker. Um, but it's gone on, and hopefully, you know, people are enjoying what they're seeing. The World Championship looks like we won't have a crowd, but hopefully, everyone will enjoy it. Uh, hopefully if we do this again next year we will uh, be in a little bit more freedom and, and, and maybe not here anyway thanks for listening everyone see you next week sports social podcast network